Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 67, Pleasure is Where You Find It. In the 1890s, international tension was building as nationalism was rising, and at the crest of the wave was Wilhelm II. Now that Bismarck was gone, there was nothing to stop the all-highest from helping Germany reach its destiny at the expense of those unfortunate countries around it. With each new phase of weaponry developed, the officer corps of various countries wanted, understandably, to try them out. What would it be like to take on someone other than an African tribe who had no basic weapons, much less Krupp's latest and greatest? Think of it, the battles, the clashes, the honor. And Wilhelm did think of it. German naval officers had already, by 1893, created a toast to the day when their might would be pit against the British Royal Navy. Those in universities on both countries talked about the day as well, as it seemed inevitable. Yet their true reaction to what would be could not be obtained, because no one knew, certainly not these 18-year-old kids, what war would be like with Krupp, Armstrong, and Schneider Cannon all facing each other. And behind them all was Fritz Krupp, who wanted to fan the flames, yet not too brightly. The fear of war was so much better for business than the actual thing. So he started a newspaper, the Berliner, to support his king and his views. But Wilhelm, as ever, wanted more. The all-highest requested of Fritz to run for office, to represent Essen, but more importantly, to help the Kaiser as he was about to abolish the Reichstag, so new elections could be held. And why was he doing this? Because they, the representatives, had the gall not to give their lord 12 million marks more to raise his army by 60,000 men. When the representatives replied, But, mein Herr, the size of the army has tripled since they beat France, to which his all-highest replied, So? No, there would be a new Reichstag, and by God, who wanted what Wilhelm wanted, he assumed, that this time the army bill would pass. Fritz ran, and won, but barely, which showed how independent the Krumpenier could be when they wanted to. Then the army bill passed. Wilhelm now had more toys to play with, in his dreams of a greater Germany. But the country's greatness comes from more than just its army, of course. It also has to have a navy second to none. And that's what the Kaiser wanted, now. Certainly now that the canal had been opened between the North and Baltic Seas in 1895. After all, Germany was the second greatest trading company, but its navy was only fifth. Unacceptable. But beyond even that, European countries were now gobbling up African colonies, and colonies required navies. Would Fritz help? Would he ever? Retooling the Grusen works, it would now focus on nickel-steel battleship armor, the goal being nine new armor-plated ships to be finished off in Essen. But what also gave Wilhelm the quick start he needed in attempting to catch up to, say, Italy, much less Britain, was when Alfred von Tirpitz became the head of the Imperial Admiralty. 
a brilliant man who could see how to use the powerful ships soon to come out of Krupp's works. And Fritz then bought a shipyard in Kiel. Soon Krumpenier were swarming all over like ants. The results would astound the world. But before glory, before a navy could be put together, even before the work could be started, there must come the money. Krupp wasn't in the charity business, not even for patriotic work, and the amounts needed could not be placed into a single bill put before the Reichstag. So the first bill, and initially there wasn't meant to be any sleight of hand by Tirpitz, which came out in 1898, called for a modest fleet, nothing that would threaten Britain's power on the seas, but certainly enough to protect trade with German colonies should hostilities break out. So far, so good. But then the Mr. Hyde part of Tirpitz seemed to appear as he told his king and Krupp that he wanted a navy second to none, something so strong no one would challenge Germany for fear of repercussions. This gave the all-highest and the most high, as the leading Krupp was often called, pause. This course of action would mean Germany was staring into the British abyss. Who does not shrink back from that? But then Britain seized a German merchant ship en route to the Boers in Africa. This travesty could not, would not be borne. Nationalism swept aside any cautious voice of fiscal responsibility or military stupidity. No matter the cost, Germany had to have security. The order from Berlin was 38 battleships. In time, Fritz would build nine battleships, five light cruisers, and 33 destroyers for his country, and charge his country through the nose. Yet the number of ships was never enough for Tirpitz, and the amount of profit was never enough for Krupp, a match made in heaven, until it wasn't. Tirpitz wanted more for what Berlin was paying. He demanded to see Fritz's books. Fritz ran to hide behind the Kaiser. Wilhelm, needing his armor, told the Admiral to drop the matter. But the Admiral was on to something. The money made by building these ships did not take into account the other ships being built for France, Britain, Japan, Italy, and the United States, and they were all constructed from Krupp nickel plating. Domestic costs could have easily been reduced, but the patent was Krupp owned, and Krupp would be paid. As a gesture of reconciliation, Fritz told Turpitz of a new kind of naval warfare his Krumpenier at Kiel had been working on, submersible submarines. Diesel's engine meant that they would not have to worry about being trapped underwater with gasoline, and the gyroscopic compass meant that they could navigate underwater. But the Admiral looked sideways at this. He would stick with surface ships. He just wanted more of them. Still, the groundwork had been laid. In time, the country's navy would experiment with their first undersea vessel, Das Unterseeboot Eins. So, yes, the money was coming in, beyond counting, for at least one person anyway. Teams of accountants watched over other accountants to keep them on the straight and narrow. Fritz could, and sometimes did, buy whatever he wanted, 
But honestly, and this may sound shocking, he hated his life. Almost every part of it. So why did he keep going? He could have let the procurer run things, like in his father's last years. But no, Fritz had worked and sacrificed and suffered for this. And he had instilled in him, by his father, an ingredient of not ever being good enough. So he strove in an attempt to quiet his father's voice in his head. And he was a success. Yet, because of his physical limitations, he could not enjoy the fine foods prepared by his chef. He could not enjoy a fine cigar. Drinking alcohol equally upset his fragile constitution. After each meal, a simple fare, his doctor would have him lie down for an hour so his lipid digestive tract could get on with its job. But Fritz Krupp did have one real pleasure, besides crushing his father's enemies, or even biology. But that one, his true pleasure, could not be tolerated in Teutonic Germany. He was gay. Somewhere along the way, Fritz figured out what he was and what he liked. And after all, he worked harder than any two men. So he decided he deserved to be happy as well. Starting in 1898, under the cover of giving himself a holiday in Capri to dive into his love of biology, Fritz would check into the Hotel Bristol. There waiting for him were several Italian youths, his protégés. When Fritz came to town, these listless, lazy, disrespectful hotel workers, Fritz had agreed to pay their wages, instead of Conrad Uhl, the owner, would drop whatever they were doing and spend all their time with the Cannon King. On one hand, the hotel manager was relieved when Fritz came. The Italians were of no help at the hotel, and some were simply too young to be employed. They were not in their 20s, some not even teenagers. Still, how does one say no to a multimillionaire who supports your business like no other? Simple. You don't. So arrangements were made, and all were satisfied. Literally. That is, except for the hotel manager, Mr. Uhl, who could not help but discover what was going on behind closed doors. Upon realizing the truth, he had to take action. Word was slowly getting out. Fritz could buy his way out of any trouble, but the hotelier could not. Just like Alfred, Mr. Uhl had to be the master of his own house. At least that's how he explained it to Fritz. So the young men of age were fired, the rest chased away, and Fritz was forced to give up his refuge, where he could let himself go. But that wasn't the end of it. Without going into too much detail, during some of Fritz's parties that intensified year after year, when the antics were done, fireworks were shot off and pictures were taken, which in time made their way around town. Also, the young men and immature boys had no reason not to talk. So after the party was shut down, and one of them remembered being ignored by Fritz, which hurt his feelings, he reported the illicit circus to the authorities on the Italian mainland. An investigation was launched, but between the circulating photos and the whispered stories, it didn't take long or much work to discover the truth. Fritz Krupp was asked 
not to come to Italy again, ever. Now, Fritz wasn't the only man to indulge himself in this way. He certainly wasn't the only gay man in Germany. There is something about absolutely forbidding something that makes it prosper, as paragraph 175 of the German Penal Code did against sodomy. But again, Fritz wasn't the only one. Of that persuasion was also, among the German nobility, three counts, all of the aides-de-camp of the Kaiser, the Kaiser's wife's private secretary, the court chamberlain, the Kaiser's best friend, who had a tryst with General Count Kuno von Mokta. But these men of rank were sometimes led outside their circles by love or lust. The king of Wuttenberg had an affair with a mechanic, the king of Bavaria chased after a coachman, and the Archduke Ludwig Victor was given the name Luzi Wuzi by his common-born male lover. This sexual orientation wasn't anything new, and it wasn't new to Germany, just under the Kaiser's nose and under wraps for the most part, which was best for everyone, considering the time and culture of the country. But Fritz's secret was about to come out, which would affect many of these men. To be sure, the German police knew of many of these trysts, but again, as the men in question were powerful, the police went about making sure no one bribed them instead of bringing these men to justice. But soon after Fritz was banished from Capri, the criminal commissar of Berlin died, who had kept detailed records of each man and his particular vices. This massive file was sent to the Kaiser upon his death. Wilhelm read the explanatory letter, but did not open the file. He did not want to know, as he knew it would shake his world view to its core. The file was sent back to the police. All was conveniently forgotten in Germany. Meanwhile, in Italy, even though Fritz was not charged with anything, still an investigation was conducted. Statements were taken, pictures were gathered, and we are talking about the richest man in Germany. Eventually, the information made its way to the Italian press. More investigations were conducted. But then Fritz was away. His daughters were about to be confirmed at Easter. The canon king himself was in London. That's when the first articles appeared in Naples' Propaganda and Rome's Avanti, which one day would be edited by Mussolini. The humiliation was intense and instantaneous. Articles of little boys, a double life, orgies throughout the night, mushroomed. The Krupp scandal was now open to the world. Fritz went into hiding somewhere in London. Money allows one to do this. Meanwhile, Krupp's enemies, and there were more than a few, cut out newspaper clippings and sent them to the Villa Hugo to the attention of Marga, the first lady of Essen. Not hearing from Fritz, the lady of the villa went to see the Kaiser, who honestly didn't know what she was hinting at, and as the purpose of her visit dawned on the man, he really didn't want to talk about this and pretty much sent her away. Still, something had to be done. Wilhelm, worried about his state, convened his counselors. If he knew that some of them were gay, he strenuously ignored that part of his brain. 
No, the matter at hand was what to be done about this situation. How could the works be saved? The Kaiser suggested, perhaps the concern could be put under the guidance of a board of trustees. But that would never do. Why? asked the Kaiser, ruffled. Sire, if we solve problems in this manner, the idea of the senior male inheriting businesses, or crowns for that matter, could come under scrutiny. Someone may decide one day that Germany should be run this way. Wilhelm let the matter drop. It would resolve itself somehow. And he was right. It just ended with an explosion. One of those counselors had contact with Fritz, who told him, for now, he was safe from Berlin. But the all-highest had to be told something. An explanation was wanting. Fritz could see no way out. But the counselor could. They would tell the Kaiser that Marga, his wife, had suffered from a spell. She was clearly delusional. What she had said? Unthinkable. Impossible. And Fritz, with nowhere else to turn, agreed. By his command, he was the husband, after all. His wife was dragged from her house and children, screaming, to an asylum. It was the beginning of November of 1902. Somehow, the remaining family members would get through the Christmas season as best they could. But the newspaper articles continued, each one giving more and more details that could be corroborated with eyewitnesses and pictures. Now Fritz was backed into a corner. He either sued for libel or admitted the truth, and that was not possible. Yet he still had friends in Berlin. They were just waiting for the word from Fritz, and then they would go work on the Kaiser to shut everything down. This was Germany, with thousands of Krupp cannon. Italy would see which way the wind blew. But Fritz was not Alfred. Alfred would have fought tooth and nail. He would have sacrificed his wife for the good of the concern. But not Fritz. To have his two daughters growing up thinking their mother was insane. Fritz was not a monster. Just someone who had the means to feed his darker side, and justify it all to himself by saying, didn't he too deserve to be happy? By the third week of November, the time had come to officially decide if Marga was to be committed for life. The answer had to be yes, or she would talk, or at least ask questions. The results would be the same. But Fritz could not say yes. Instead, he ate dinner quietly with his two young daughters, played a board game, and then retired for the evening. The next day, everyone woke up and started their day. But not Fritz. Somehow, and no one ever figured out exactly how or when, but the man had taken his own life during the night and thus spared his family the shame that was about to come. Marga was released, and the funeral was held. The Kaiser, still poker-faced, led the procession but that was for the public. In private, the only question was, what would become of the concern, Germany's armorer? After all, at the head of this multi-million mark enterprise that owned huge tracts of land, factories, fleets of ships, which made everything from simple tools to massive cannon to even bigger warships, was Fritz's oldest daughter, 
Berta. Yet this was the fatherland, not the motherland. No, Berta may have been the new canon queen, but she needed a husband. German establishment needed her to have a master. And Wilhelm himself would do the matchmaking.